So welcome to Cecil's Unknown Achievers. This is episode number four. My thanks to those of you who've been listening. If you're joining me for the first time, Cecil's Unknown Achievers is all about hardworking entrepreneurs. So today I'm speaking with someone whose background is in design, specifically in architectural design. She's a graduate from my alma mater, Oak Park River Forest High School, and she's attended and graduated from Ball State. Her name is Maya Bird Murphy, and she's the founder of Chicago Mobile Makers. Chicago Mobile Makers is a nonprofit that offers youth design and problem-solving workshops in the Chicago communities. So, Maya, welcome to CISA's Unknown Achievers. Thanks for having me. And thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join me. So, we'll get into more details later, but to start off, please, just give me a brief overview of what Chicago Mobile Makers is. Sure. Um, Chicago Mobile Makers is a nonprofit organization. Um, we go around different communities in Chicago, all over, um, you know, really any neighborhood. And we do design and um, design thinking and problem solving workshops. So that could be with um, groups that are, sorry, I'm messing this up. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, so that could be with groups that are really young, like age um, eight, or it could go all the way up to um, people who are age 18. So um, we could do one, one day workshops or, um, you know, multi-week engagements. What led you to, to start this venture? Yeah, I think it goes all the way back to when I was living in Oak Park. I grew up there. And as you know, Frank Lloyd Wright is a really huge deal. And I think that subconsciously that kind of soaked into my brain of um, design and architecture just because it's talked about so, so often. Um, and then I didn't decide to go to architecture school until um, high school, like late high school, when I did a, a high school um, camp that had to do with architecture. And, and then I ended up going to Ball State, which is in Muncie, Indiana. And I don't know if you've been there, but it's, it's very different from Oak Park. Um, the school, uh, Ball State, and the College of Architecture were very white. And so it was kind of culture shock going there. And, you know, we never really learned about architects of color or designers of color. Um, and once I actually got through that and then started working, I came back to Chicago and I felt that it was actually exactly kind of the same as being in Muncie where, um, you know, I'm, I'm usually the only uh, black person or person of color working in a firm. So I think that all of these experiences and thoughts kind of came together and kind of formed into Chicago Mobile Makers. And I actually did all the research and development for the nonprofit during my master's program um, at Boston Architectural College. Um, where I had like a whole year to to really gather all of these thoughts, um, and then it turned into this nonprofit. So you experience a similar uh, environment with where you went to school in in Muncie, and then when you joined the workforce here in Chicago in in the architectural industry. Yeah, I think um, just being one of the few people of color in my 
architecture program, I thought that coming back to Chicago would be, you know, really different because it's really diverse. Um, but architecture is, you know, mostly uh, white males. So, yeah, it felt kind of the same in a weird way. Now, how did that affect your, obviously it didn't sway you from pursuing this, but what kind of things were going through your head at that time after you obviously had some expectations of what you would experience here in Chicago and it, it didn't turn out to be that way? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely disappointing, but in the school and really in, in the whole architecture field, there's a very direct path that you're supposed to take. So they tell you um, very early in school exactly what you need to do to become an architect and to be an architect. And um, that is that you, you know, go to school, you have to get um, a four-year or five-year degree. Um, so you either do five years or four plus two, which is what I did because I um, did my master's program afterwards. Um, and then you have to work a certain like thousands of hours um, and log them. Um, and then you have to take six exams. And that's all to just call yourself an architect. And so I've done everything except for the six exams. And so I'm planning to do them at some point. But um, so there are just a lot of barriers. And, and that's why, you know, a lot of people of color don't, you know, can't make it over each of those barriers. That's interesting. So the, you certainly didn't follow that, uh, that typical path as, as they described it then. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely started, and I think that was the hardest part of this, was that Chicago Mobile Makers isn't part of the path, and um, it was really hard to figure out what I was going to do, because I knew that the path wasn't for me, but, you know, I, I also work part-time at a architecture firm, but I do marketing, so that was part of um, me trying to figure out what was better for me, and, you know, I knew that I liked doing graphics, and um, and stuff like that. So I knew that marketing would be more interesting to me. So yeah, I, I just somehow, I think after this thesis process, found this alternate path and, and just started walking that direction instead. So take me back for a minute. You're fresh out of school, obviously seeking to get employed. What was your, your first endeavor right out of, of school, out of Ball State? Um, I worked at um, a place called Landon Bone Baker, which does affordable housing. Um, and I actually had the job before I graduated, and I was actually graduating early, which is a little bit crazy. Um, but I was I was graduating a semester early and had a job lined up, so I was very excited to jump into the to the profession. And as as you said before, I had expectations that were a little, you know turned out to be different in real life. How did the, the spark to start the Chicago mobile makers come? Were, were there examples of people doing this elsewhere that you kind of modeled yourself after? Or is this a, just a totally brand new thing that you started yourself? Yeah, I can't say that it's totally brand new. Um, it's definitely something that isn't really, you know, there are forms of this a, a lot of places. and someone that I got a lot of inspiration from was Emily Pilliton and she started this thing that's called Girls Garage in Berkeley and that's an all-girls program but you know like eight 
like eight year olds are like welding, which is totally wow. crazy and, and cool. So I saw her doing this work and she actually also has a degree in architecture. So I think she was one of the first people that I saw with an architecture degree doing something different. So she was definitely a huge inspiration. So here in Chicago, what was the, I guess, uh, problem or outside of the fact that there weren't many people of color, as you saw in, in the industry, what, what was the unmet need that you saw that, that you could fill? I think that leaving Chicago strangely um, opened my eyes to built injustice. So Muncie is, you know, when you're on the campus, it's, it's a pretty beautiful campus. And, um, but as soon as you leave, there are a lot of um, houses that are, you know, not in great shape. Um, there are some empty lots. And that was the first time that I realized that, you know, not every place is like Oak Park. Sure. Um, and I've, you know, I've traveled a lot. And, and so I already knew that. But um, I really started digging deep, um, I guess, within myself to think about our spaces that we live in um, and work in. And then coming back to Chicago, obviously, the, the south and west side, there are a lot of the same issues. So I tried in my thesis, I asked two questions. Um, I asked, how do we help or, you know, improve these areas that are mostly forgotten, um, you know, by cities, um, areas that don't have much investment from the city or, you know, from developers, um, and, and those areas that don't have much building going on at all. So how can we improve those neighborhoods and how can we diversify the architecture field and, and the other design fields? And like, can we do those two things at, at the same time? Um, and that's how Chicago Mobile Makers kind of came together. The term I, I saw as I was reading a little bit about you that popped up a couple of times was uh, social architecture. <laughs> Tell me what that means and I guess what it means to you and what it is exactly. Yes, I would just, I would define it as architecture that is more um, involved in, you know, maybe making an issue better or um, more involved in, you know, architecture for people and for the public. So in school, we were very often not taught about social architecture. And so an example of not social architecture is like, um, you know, maybe a high rise condo building, you know, those are being built all over the place right mm -hmm. now. Um, so those, those are, those are luxury housing. Um, so those are not being built for, you know, the regular person. They're being built for people who have the money to rent one of these luxury condos. Um, social architecture could be um, creating this really beautiful, you know, food market or something where like a bunch of local artisans come and sell their stuff and um, there's a bunch of local food being uh, sold there. And so it's, it's much more about people. It's much more about the public and maybe it's solving, you know, maybe it's a food desert and it's solving issues that that community is having. So it was really 
another challenge um, coming out of school was trying to find a firm that was more interested in social social architecture, which is pretty hard to find. It's just not something that you found they were really interested in, and and why why do you think that was or is? Um, well, the reason that there aren't that many firms that are making social architecture central is because there's no market for social architecture. So that's, that's not making anybody money. So it's hard to have a firm that's fully, and you know, some people are really trying and and I know a lot of really small firms that um, are really picky about the work that they do and, and it's all social architecture, but it's just a really hard business model just with our current market. Yeah, I'd imagine if there's not an immediate return that they probably aren't willing to devote a lot of resources to that. Yeah, exactly. And and developers, their whole thing is to get a, a quick return. So um, it's it's definitely a kind of a big systemic problem. So what? Do, how do we change that? Because there, it's it's obviously a well a worthwhile pursuit, but the dollars just may not be there. What what can be done to affect change in that area? Your thoughts? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I don't think it's going to change um, really anytime soon. I think that we're seeing a lot more like grassroots or small. Um, small firms yeah small firms small organizations doing this work but you know they're sacrificing some things too like it's not like a lucrative business to to do this and you have to um, it's kind of risk risky in a way I don't think that things are going to change I think it's like you know it's wrapped up in like capitalism and so it's it's systemic change that needs to happen and so I don't see anything changing in the architecture space for for a while hopefully the folks that are doing what you're doing create a a swell and just grow grow the need and, and interest that it somehow develops into something that will generate the the revenue that these folks are looking for to make the investments yeah and actually we we've seen really recently the city putting out um, like requests for qualifications for firms to do work on just the south and west sides. So there's definitely, you know, very slowly some change happening, but that's a, that's a really huge thing that just happened um, when they put out that RFQ. Hmm. Okay. Well, there's, there's a start. <laughs> yeah, it's a start. So I always love to hear, like what's going on in the minds of, of entrepreneurs when they decide to leave what's viewed as security with a, uh, a job or employment and then go full time into their, their endeavor, which is their passion. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the time that, that you were mulling that over and the, the thoughts are going through your head. You, it seems like you were very determined from the, from the get-go to, to do this, but uh, I imagine there was a time where you were maybe considering it and not doing it, but 
Just sure. tell me what, what, what was going on in your head then? Yeah. I mean, there, there have kind of been like stepping stones of getting farther into it. And um, it started when I was doing my thesis. So I was actually doing my master of architecture, mostly online um, and then working full time, which was already a lot. And then in September of 2017, I incorporated the nonprofit um, while, you know, still finishing school. I finished school in December of 2017. Um, so I was working full time and trying to build this bid business. And at first it was fine because nothing, you know, we weren't doing that many workshops. Um, I mostly was just working full time. And then like less than a year later, I got to the point where I was running around. I was trying to get out of my full-time job to go do workshops during the day. <laughs> and so, <How'd> that go? <laughs> you know, the, the firm was pretty supportive to a point. Um, so, you know, I could maybe get out during the day once a week or something. Um, but then that, you know, workshops just became you know, more and more um, frequent. And so I went to my, thing. yeah, yeah, it's great. Except when you are trying to keep your full-time job. Um, so I went to the, to the firm and, and asked to work part-time and they, they said no. So I had to make that choice of, do I just keep working here or, um, and the nonprofit was not making much money at all at this point so it's not like I could have just quit um but I lucked out and actually found a part-time gig um which I'm still doing right now so I still haven't you know gotten to to full-time at this point but um uh, my current job they're very supportive of me kind of making my own schedule and I only work there uh, 20 hours a week so it's kind of like I have half and half and kind of make my own schedule and can schedule around workshops and everything. So the next step would be to go full-time, which I'm not sure when that happens, especially because of COVID. You know, we were supposed to be really, really busy this past spring. Like there was one work, uh, one week where we had 12 workshop sessions in like a five-day period, which is insane. And I don't know how we, like we would have gotten it done, but um, that's how busy we've become. And then now because of COVID, we're kind of not doing anything except for um, some pop-ups this summer, but yeah, we'll see when, when full-time happens. Well, that, that's, uh, that's very impressive. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the hours you're putting in on every given, any given week is equivalent to, to full-time, but you're doing it in <laughs> two different places. So kudos Probably. to you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So, yeah. So you mentioned the unsupportiveness, I guess, uh, of, of the first employer, but a lot of things I know I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs, they experience as naysayers, not necessarily folks telling you you can't do it, but not necessarily being as supportive as you liked. And unfortunately, sometimes those come from friends and family, folks we, you know, who really do love us and don't mm-hmm. want us to fail. Sure. Did, uh, did you experience any of that and how'd you deal with it? I think that mostly friends and family were really supportive and I don't know if they knew if I was really serious or not. Like I would seriously talk about it and I've been, you know, I've been talking about this idea for years 
and so they were really supportive but I definitely have had many people like especially during thesis we have um, in architecture school you have this thing called a critique where you pretty much present your work and um, the people who come they're usually guest professors or you know designers that are local they come and specifically come to critique your work <laughs> And so, um, so I got stuff like, how is this a thesis? How is this architecture? Why is this even, why is this program even a thing that's needed? Um, so that, that part of it was, was tough. Um, and then once it actually got into the real world, I've definitely had some, there's like an ego that's attached to architects. It's, it's just like what happens for some reason. And, um, you know, this isn't real architecture, so it's looked down upon sometimes. And um, social architecture is already kind of seen as a lesser or like a, like a lower design. Um, so there, there's definitely a lot of, of that kind of stuff out there. But overwhelmingly, it's been really positive and supportive. <laughs> Did you use that as a little fuel to kind of fire you ahead? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I've had lots of fuel. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the folks, or, or the students, I should say, that you're covering 8 to 18 years old? Mm-hmm. All right. How do you go about choosing which area or which school, or are, are they mainly just coming to you and looking for education in these areas or are you seeking them out to tell them about who you are and what you do? Yeah. I mean, luckily the first few years, it was a lot of like word of mouth or, you know, I've been in the Wednesday journal a couple times and people would email me from that. Or um, one time I was on Chicago tonight and I actually got like a couple jobs from teachers who had seen uh, the clip. So Oh wow. It's yeah, it's been really organic so far and you know, we've kept busy mostly because people have heard about us or they've seen our Instagram page and they say like it's a lot of teachers who will reach out and say like I want this to happen in my classroom. So that's been really great. Yeah, I know my my brother's a teacher and he's always looking for experiences for for the students that mm-hmm. kind of in, in energize them and, and give them a little fire. I've went to his class a few times over the years to, to speak to the students about entrepreneurship. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's really fun. I, I love doing it. And it's, it's something that I'd love to continue to, to do. The teachers are hoping to engage kids into different areas than they, they think they can uh, pursue. I, I don't, think there's a lot of uh, belief, as you've probably found, that architecture is uh, something that they can get into and the, the thrill mm-hmm. that you get from it, I'm, I'm sure you communicate that to them in, in the workshops that you, you host. Yeah, so that's the biggest reason why we go into schools and, and you ask how, like, where we go and how we choose schools. So usually teachers are reaching out, but we always try to go like the target areas are going to be the south and west sides. Um, and then part of the north side, too, I think we, we think of the north side as being mostly white, but, you know, there's a huge Latino community. Like we've been to Schur's High School, and that's both black and brown students. 
so right now we we try to choose classes that are diverse and um, that yeah you're exactly right what you said was that a lot of these kids have never thought about being an architect because you know maybe nobody's really talked to them about it or, or maybe they've never met someone who is an architect so that's the whole point of of kind of going into these you know it could be a math class it could be we were in a history class in the spring um, and so it's just about exposure yeah, seeing someone that looks like them who's in the field is definitely value-added for them. Yeah, exactly. Tell me, it, it seems like you've experienced some tremendous growth in a relatively short period of time. What are some growing pains, if, if you've had any? Well, I think the most painful thing has just been, it's been a lot of work. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think we've had growing pains. Um, we've kind of scaled up and added help as we've needed it. So it's definitely, I think the biggest challenge is just being places um, like at one point it was just me and I didn't have any help. And I think I, I went to over a hundred workshop sessions that year by myself. And, wow. and so, <laughs> yeah. So that has been the, the hardest thing is not really having the money to hire someone. And we actually did hire someone in, um, back in fall 2019. Um, so that was a huge help. But before that, when I was still, you know, part of the time I was still working full time and then I finally switched to part time and yeah, just being in the amount of places that I needed to be in <laughs> was really difficult especially because we're going all around the city. So sometimes, you know, I was like living in my car practically because <laughs> sometimes I had to go from the north side to the south side, you know, right one after another. Well, these, these are the times you'll, you'll probably remember years from now. It, it's, it's a struggle now and a, a, a maybe challenge right now, but uh, I know years from now you'll, you'll look back on this and, and probably smile and you'll, you'll be glad you went through it. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I know you can't see it now, but you will. <laughs> so you're, you kept saying we, what, uh, how big of a team do you have that, that works with you? Yeah, I, I notoriously say we all the time. And I think I started doing this right at the beginning when it was literally just me. And mm -hmm. I think I was just trying to sound more robust. Um, so I'm just kind of in the habit. But um, right now it is just me and we actually have two interns right now, um, summer interns. And we had another program facilitator all of this past school year helping out. And then there are seven board members that will, a lot of them will volunteer their time to come in and help facilitate programs. With nonprofits, one of the challenges is staffing and the other is, is funding. So mm -hmm. how, how are you, you've got a lot on your plate, obviously. How, how do you balance your time between doing the work and sourcing the funding to allow you to do the work? Yeah, that's been hard. That's um, been one of the most challenging things. But um, my biggest goal for the 2019 2020 school year was to start bringing in more money and I really focused on that 
And since I had help, um, I could kind of step back from some workshops and think about that. But we're, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit, but we still have like program service fees. So that's actually where most of our funding's coming. So if we're doing more workshops, we're bringing in more money. So, um, and then the, like the grant writing and stuff, that's what is hard to make time for, but we rely on that less than, you know, actual program service fees. So the, I mean, how big is the pressure to show results for what, you know, well, I, I guess a, a step back is what, what does success look like for you? How do you, how do you measure that? Yeah, I think um, so far, I think it's been growing and, and kind of hitting these benchmarks where now we're doing, you know, I think the, well, if we forget about COVID, <laughs> we were doing the the amount of workshops that I was hoping for like mm -hmm. this spring. We were, you know, we were booked. Um, and we haven't talked about this, but we just built out a um, mobile maker space. I'm not sure if you saw that. I did saw see pictures. that. Yeah. So um, that is part of our success where we had this idea from the start and we've been building towards it and finally finished this kind of, huge project that we've been working on for a year now um and then i think that success could be as small as like we we go into a classroom and like one person gets inspired <laughs> by what mm -hmm. we're doing so that's success but then i think long-term success is eventually we have a permanent space um and we're we're having workshops like throughout the week. So maybe we have a workshop every day or two workshops every day where people can come in and take skill building workshops. So we're also trying to do um, kind of workshops that build upon each other. So like if you take 3D printing 101, then you can also take three more classes in 3D printing. And you've actually, by the time you're done, you've mastered a skill. So that's another um, way to see success for us, I think, is that if kids are coming in and actually um, building real skills that they can take out into the world and, and use as they will. Well, it, it seems like you, <laughs> there's no shortage of uh, students. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can certainly be as, as busy as you can be. Yeah. And it, it really felt like that this spring. Um, like I was making calendars and trying to fit in um more workshops as like as many as we we could so um i do think that we you know we have to get through this fall and maybe this spring and i think those this school year is going to look really different um but every school wants programming and um so i think we definitely have plenty of kids to reach and i hope that we kind of create a community of kids that keep coming back that are, you know, want to learn more skills or, you know, be an expert at something. The vehicle, that, that wasn't a response. You, you always had that in mind. That wasn't necessarily just a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Nope. <laughs> that was actually the like piece of architecture that I designed huh. um, in my thesis process. 
So I mean, that was it seems always like it's a, a perfect solution to this. <laughs> yeah, problem. no, it was, it was just very good timing, honestly. Yeah. Like, um, it, it really was disheartening when we had to, to cancel or pro- postpone all of our workshops in March, but it actually gave me the time that I needed to finish the, you know, I wasn't doing the work, um, but, you know, I got to design it and redesign it and really look at all the details which I wouldn't have had time to do um, if we had had the spring that we were supposed to. So um, that was a positive. And then um, now, you know, people are wanting to do things outside so we can park and we can, and we can do activities outside. So that's another positive. Sure. What, what do you need that you don't currently have? It's a good question. Um, I think that, this permanent space is going to be, you know, this is one of the big needs um, that we hope to have, you know, maybe in the next three years where, you know, we hope to have this kind of, I've been calling it a hub where it's kind of like a community center and it it could be a gallery and it could be um, a shop and this kind of multi-purpose space that, you know, we won't have any limits when it comes to tools or workshops um, I would say a short-term, I guess, and long-term need is funding. Like that's just forever, <laughs> forever going to be a challenge, I think. Absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, donors and grants, those are all going to be really important for us to continue doing what we're doing. And you're trying to partnering with the city. Uh, that's where the, uh, proposals come in I, I i guess yeah well we we haven't gotten like a city contract but um right now we're partnering with a lot of cps schools or you know arts organizations or youth development organizations so along with that uh tremendous growth you've experienced tell me about some decisions you've made along the way that were great and some maybe that you feel weren't so great yeah I would say you know the growth has been like I feel like the first year was all about kind of testing the waters and you know all of our I've written like all of the curriculums for our workshops and you know we just had to test those out so sometimes it didn't work that well you know Mm -hmm. um and you just kind of have to go in and see what what people, um, you know, are actually going to stay engaged with. So um, I would say that that was probably the, the biggest challenge. Um, but then I think the second year was all about like experimentation where we tried out a lot of new things. We did um, pop-ups. We partnered with the um, Chicago Architecture Biennial. Um, so we actually got to kind of continue refining our workshops, but then try these new kind of cool things. And then I think like this spring, we were at a point where all of our workshops have been tested. We've done them multiple times with different groups of kids. And so we were just kind of like ready to roll. Um, And unfortunately we had to stop, but um, yeah, I think that we got to a point where we were really confident about our curriculum and and about what we were teaching um yeah the i guess if there's a 
a bright side to this pandemic is that it gave a lot of people and, and businesses the opportunity to, to stop and think about their approach. And it definitely gave entrepreneurs like you an opportunity to just pause from the busy, busyness and mm-hmm. kind of just reformat things and think a little more strategically about what they're going to do in the future. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that this is the first time I've like rested since the beginning of undergrad. (laughs) So this is honestly the, the shutdown has been kind of okay for me because this is the first time that I, you know, haven't been running around um, or trying to get to work in the morning on the train. And um, it's actually been the first time that I I feel like I'm human again, (laughs) which has been great. So speaking of that, you know, how do you, how do you balance your time, uh, personal time, family time, and, you know, outside of guys like me who are emailing you on the weekends when (laughs) you're off, but. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, I, I wouldn't say that I have great balance, um, but I think that I've tried to make that better by creating my own schedule. So I think that was the biggest thing about working full time was that I didn't feel in control of my own schedule. And I think that really, like I took a hit um, when I was, you know, in an office 40 hours a week. Um, <clears throat> so just having control of when I do things and when I work on things has been huge. And that means that I can easily schedule in time with friends or family. Um, I also like live alone and have two dogs. So they're usually the ones that dictate my schedule, honestly. Um, what kind of dogs do you have? There, I have two Australian shepherds. Are those size of like German shepherds or they're smaller ones like one's 40 pounds one's 70 pounds okay yeah so they're a huge part of my life and I actually live up on the north side by the the north branch of the Chicago River so it's very naturey up here and that helps me slow down too Um, it's right by a bike path and everything you gotta stop and smell the roses Maya you gotta do it Yeah, I, tr- I try. <laughs> <laughs> so as we close out here, just um, what's, what would you say is the most important thing people should know about you and Chicago Mobile Makers? I think that it's important for people to know why this is so important. Um, and, you know, I think, I think some people look at what we're doing and they say, oh, cool, it's, you know, it's STEM. STEM is trendy and, um, you know, we, we all love STEM, but I actually try to, not to really use the word STEM because of its, because um, it's so trendy. Um, <clears throat> I see this programming as like essential, especially for black and brown communities, mm-hmm. um, because right now we have so many neighborhoods that there's no building, there's no investment, and they're not going to change um, until, you know, unless the city finally decides to put, you know, an RFQ out or, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of waiting around for things to change. And so 
this is all about getting more people into these industries that you know it could be policy making it could be um, it could be architecture it could be engineering it could be develop um, development but we need to have more people of color um, you know with a seat at the table in these really important um, you know built environment conversations but then we also need to work from the ground up where we're giving just regular citizens skills that may improve their lives like if you teach someone how to you know use a hammer and some and some wood or something mm -hmm. then maybe they can add a little addition to their house when they're older you know so there there are skills that can literally change people's lives and and these skills are also passed down through generations like that person might teach their brother to use a hammer and then that brother teaches his son you know um, or daughter so these skills are so important and I think that they will help people build their own communities up um, especially when it's like small-scale interventions so it's really important um, from both sides the grassroots side and and the top down yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a very cool idea, but it, it's it's more essential than cool. You know, it's it's uh, mm -hmm. it, it's got to be woven into the fabric of the education that these these young folks are are receiving. Yeah, exactly. I I see it as essential, and you know, hopefully, it doesn't come down to it where you know, black and brown people are going to have to rebuild their own communities, like. Um, it doesn't, it's not really, I don't think their responsibility to, to do that, but um, there's been a lot of waiting. I mean, there's been in Chicago, it's been like 50 years of waiting. I mean, mm. these, these communities have looked the same for that long. And so we need to stop waiting and we need to just build them ourselves. So how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more, if they want to possibly participate in funding, how, how do they reach you? Yeah, you can come to our website, um, chicagomobilemakers.org, or you can email me at maya at chicagomobilemakers.org, whatever works. All right. Well, Maya, thanks again for being on Cecil's Unknown Achievers. I know you are super busy, so I, I thank you very much for the time, and I, I really enjoyed this and learning about you and your business. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the show. Be sure to check out Maya at Chicago Mobile Makers if you're an educator looking to bring new experiences to your students. Hey, even if you're not an educator and you want to expose youth to architectural and design skills that may open up future opportunities for them, Chicago Mobile Makers is a great source. Until next time, this is Cecil Archbold Jr. with Cecil's Unknown Achievers.